Welcome to today's episode of Fire in the Belly. This is where we get to hear some pretty inspiring stories from some amazing people. You know, it's always an absolute pleasure to sit down, take time out and have a warts and all conversation about their journey. I'm always intrigued by what it's taken for people to get to where they are today. And hopefully in this interview, we get to hear some more about that. From this, my mission is to help people to find their own fire in their belly. And from that, to live the mightiest version of you. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy today's guest. Success is a process, not an event. Good morning and welcome to Fire in the Belly. Today we have myself, Mighty Pete, and we're joined by Jane Baylor. Good morning, Jane. Hello, Pete. Thank you so much for inviting me on your show. I'm really excited to be here. And Fire in the Belly means a lot to me because I'm a very passionate uh, person and I've got a lot of purpose and that's what your podcast is all about. So it's great. Perfect. Well, give us a very quick overview. Who are you? What are you doing? Where are you from? So my uh, business is called The Smart Connector, but obviously I'm more than my business. Um, So I'm a serial entrepreneur. I've got a history of growing and scaling businesses in media and entertainment. That's what I did for 20 years. I grew and sold a uh, brand identity agency um, to uh, sold it to a U.S. communications group. So that grew very, very fast. And there's quite an interesting story attached to that. So uh, I did that a while back. Then I um, had children. So I took a a, a different direction. I became an entrepreneur from home. I started up a little um, group tuition business, which was quite a nice little Uh, side hustle, should we say, for a while when my children were small. Then I uh, did some property education. I got involved in the property space and I generally work fairly part time, I have to say, in that space with high net, ultra high net worth investors to uh, match them up with the opportunities that are right for them. So that's basically my history. And right at the moment, I'm working on the most exciting project, um, which by the time this episode is out, probably will have launched, which is my uh, Leader They Love um, Accelerator program, which is designed to help entrepreneurs explode their business growth very, very fast and get the uh, clients that they've always wanted and they deserve. Wow, I love that. I mean, what, what a fantastic thing to be going into, you know, a new year with as well. And that's, I mean, is, yeah. this, is this sort of, is this bringing together all your knowledge and, and really sort of supporting people out there? Yes, absolutely. I mean, obviously, with my history, uh, business growth was something that I specialized in for 20 years. So I was a high level business developer. I worked for a lot of uh, major advertising agencies, global advertising agencies like Young Rubicon, television companies like Fox Television and so on. So I kind of straddled, straddled Um, advertising and television and then it all kind of came together when I as I said I became MD of this um, brand identity agency well it wasn't a brand identity agency when I started it was a design agency but uh, we repositioned it into brand identity went global and the business uh, grew from one to six million in really just over a year and we sold it the following year to a US communications group called Interpublic so I really know how to Um, just how to grow businesses very, very fast. 
But the missing piece, and this was something that I now incorporate into my programs and also my marketing consultancy work, is really the incredible power of marketing automation and digital technology. And also, of course, the core messaging and the copywriting uh, skills, which actually highlight what you do in the market and really sort of put put the signal out um, to your ideal clients and say, hello, this is me and this is how I'm going to help you in a way that no, nobody else, none of my competitors can. So mm. that's really what it's all about. Oh, well, just break that down for us then. I mean, you talk about, you know, brand identity for one and then marketing, marketing automation. Yeah. <clears throat> what does that mean? Right. Uh, so they're obviously two distinct areas. So brand identity, and I was actually having a, a conversation with a guy on my podcast like last night about this. Uh, brand identity, um, what he said, which I thought was a great definition, is what people say about you when you're not in the room. So that's a good way of thinking about it. So a lot of people think, well, branding is about the gloss. It's about the wrapping. And it's not. It's actually... Um, it's something that is also a behavioral thing. It's to do with customer experience. Um, it's very, very much to do with reputation. It's what people, as James said, what people say about you when you're not in the room. Um, so it's very powerful. And the concept of brand equity is interesting because obviously equity means value, commercial value, financial value. And when you invest in your brand um, over a period of years, your brand in itself um, becomes very, very valuable financially. So if you look at uh, Coca-Cola, for example, or Nike, the reason why they are such valuable brands and they are branding businesses. I mean, otherwise you take away the brand from Coca-Cola and you just got sugar water, right? Um, you know, it doesn't really taste very nice and fizzes in, on your tongue, right? But uh, it's the brand really that makes Coca-Cola and the fact that they've invested in that for over a decade now, very, very significantly. They pump millions and millions and millions every single year into that Coca-Cola brand means that they have a lot of brand equity. But brand equity comes from investment. So I guess there's all sorts of different aspects of brand. There's brand identity. Um, there's brand value. There's brand equity. You know, you can break it down in all this brand expression, which is obviously how the brand looks. So you can break it down into all sorts of different areas that all come under the umbrella heading, shall we say, of brand. So that's brand. Um, digital and automated marketing is something different. So that is really the technology that delivers the brand, shall we say. And again, that uh, contributes to brand uh equity and performance and value, because we all know that uh, we all obviously are involved in one way or another with digital and automated marketing, because we all buy stuff online. I mean, at its most basic. So we all know that it can be very frustrating when things don't work well. And we all know the feeling of satisfaction and relief when we get involved in a process that just happens like bounce, 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 done, you know, just like that. And so that is the connection, if you like, between um, brand performance and digital marketing, digital and automated marketing. It's really just facilitating um, a connection to many when you're not in the room. 
And today, the real difference between now and when I was running my business is that now digital and automated marketing is accessible to many, which means that we can really starting from a relatively humble place, we can actually evolve seven or eight figure businesses um, with a relatively small team and take them to the world. And just like your podcast, I mean, that's a prime example, isn't it? I'm sure you've got a global audience, Pete, and isn't that great? So that's really the difference anyway between the two. Oh, well, thank you for explaining that. It makes a lot more sense. Thank you. <laughs> so tell us, what, what does Fire in the Belly mean to you, Jane? Passion. And I know we were talking about this before we started. So um, it just means that that thing that gets you up in the morning, that gets you out of bed and with a spring in your step and really looking forward to the day. And it means the place where you go to um, when you're dreaming about your future and um, just a feel good place. I just love it. It's actually bringing goosebumps to me even talking about it. So I love the title. I love the concept. It's amazing. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, passion is it is. It's funny how, you know, it, it bypasses so many things for us when we talk about our passion, our beliefs, our wants or, you know, our language and even our energy steps up. And even as you talk about it, you you know, you, you say it with a smile. It's great. Yeah, that's right. We all need to feel passionate about our life. And it's funny because uh, I talk to a lot of people and I think I think people lose that passion and they just fall into a fairly humdrum existence. And I see that quite a lot because um, I don't just obviously it's more um, it's less prevalent with entrepreneurs because we need that passion in order to build businesses and so on. But I do think a lot of people, uh, they start out as kids with this kind of incredible purpose and passion. And I want to be an astronaut and I want to be a firefighter. I want to be a footballer. You ask any 10 year old what they want to be and they're just straight away. They're in their dreams, aren't they? And they believe it as well. They believe in possibility. And we lose that when we when we become adults. And I think that's such a shame because we always need to have a dream, no matter how old we are, no matter what we've done in our lives. We need to set ourselves a new goal and have a new vision that we feel really excited about because that's so linked, I think, to our mental health and well-being. Mm, absolutely. And so what did, what did Jane want to be when she grew up? What was the plan? I always wanted to be an author. Uh, because I was like a massive bookworm. In fact, I still am, to be honest. I, I just love reading and I consume books all the time. Um, so I was a massive bookworm and I used to read about eight books, about eight books a week. I just have this pile of books from the library. And I just used to read and read and read for hours on end. And that was just the type of child that I was. So for me, I thought, well, you know, my ultimate dream would to, would to be, be an author. And now I am. <laughs> I just like to have the time to write more books because that actually is very much a part of my future because writing and learning and kind of just articulating knowledge and ideas and, and letting it trickle down to other people is, I find it very rewarding. That's amazing. So, I mean, so you obviously enjoy the process of writing. Yeah. So I love it. What is it? Is it pen to paper? Is it firing the imagination? Do you know, do you know what it is? Uh, it, it, to me, it's the uh, intellectual synthesis. So I really like to, I really like to figure things out in my mind. And um, 
just get a mental picture and simplify ideas. So I, I, I think, you know, we all have a gift, don't we? We all have a superpower, if you like. So my superpower, if you like, is to take uh, ideas that other people might find um, complex or a bit too challenging to master and actually simplify them and put them into um, a form that really anybody can understand. So I love to do that. I just find it, uh, as I said, we all have a superpower. We all have a gift. And that is my gift, I think, communication, but particularly written communication, because that enables me to to um, really, really get it right. I think if you've got time to kind of actually think, no, that's not quite right, but this is right. And that's that's the the step beyond verbal communication. Mm. Oh, wow. I mean, do you have an example of something that, you know, that to simplify down or? Oh, gosh, you're really putting me on the spot now. Um, I really can't can't think of anything that, that comes to mind um, straight away. But that is, uh, the, I suppose, with marketing and branding, it is getting a potentially complex solution or a complex theory or, or product or whatever, getting across simply, right? I mean, that's simplicity of the mind. Yeah, so there, there's an interesting book called The Microscript Rules, and I think uh, this talks about this and about uh, the simplification and really good copywriting is about really distilling a concept or an idea in a very, very simple form. And I grew up in that environment. I grew up in a big agency environment where if you couldn't explain yourself simply, you just, you had no value. That this is what everybody expected. Okay, what's the issue? You should be able to say what the issue is in under a minute. What's the answer? Tell them what the answer is in under, it was just expected. That was common practice. So um, I tend to, I guess I've internalized that. And I know sometimes I do tend to waffle a bit. I'm not, I'm not as good as some of these people that I was around at that time. But then again, I was with the top marketers and the top creative directors in the whole world working in a big agency environment in London. So they set the bar pretty high. I mean, I was in some incredible um, pitches for like, you know, huge, huge global brands. And I saw the top performers and the top people deliver those pitches and they were impressive. So if I compare myself to them, I'm like, well, I'm not really quite there. I wasn't the person that was actually delivering those pitches. But uh, obviously, it had there has to be a trickle down um, thing in terms of actually delivering on the brand, the brand expression, uh, you know, communicating, developing business, introducing new ideas and all of that. We're all involved in it. So you have to be, you know, have to be the same ilk, as it were. It's great. I mean, I suppose that's that's what comes with experience when the expertise, right? You know, it's that understanding and distilling, you know, getting your message across, as you say, it's like, if you can't say it under a minute, then you need to go back. Yes, yes, exactly. And and ideally, I, and I think this is very important, everybody needs, um, needs an elevator pitch or they need to have a brand promise um, that people understand. So what is the transformation that they're going to create for others? Because you know, we're all essentially looking for um, we're, we're looking for progress in our lives. And so when we come across other people, the one mistake that people make is they think or they assume that other people are actually interested in them. And when you that may come, but in a marketing environment, 
what and a business environment, what people are interested in is what you can do for them. So what is the transformation that you can create? What is the result that they're going to get, uh, you know, in terms of their engagement with you? And that is always the important thing to remember, I think, if you're in any um, encounter uh, that, that is a, I don't know, a pitch or a business meeting for the first time. So absolutely. It's always, yeah, getting your message across and, and rather than sort of overloading. So it makes it makes a lot of sense. Take us right back, Jane. Who talked to us about Mini Jane? What, what are we looking at? <laughs> Mini Jane. So I, I, this is for anybody that knows me, this is not a secret, but I did have a very, very challenging start in life. Um, my my uh, mother had some mental health addiction issues. Um, my father was a relatively successful executive, but he worked very, very hard. So he wasn't around very much. And when he was, I think he was a little bit intimidated by my mother because she had a lot of mood swings and was obviously her behavior was was a little bit predictable, unpredictable and crazy. Now, underneath it all, I knew, know that she was a loving person. Um, but the thing is uh, that there is a difference between feeling love and expressing it. And unfortunately, when you're in the grip of um, a mental illness, then it is very difficult to actually express love and to really take care of um, other people in your life. So she was only really able to kind of stumble through life, I would say, or certainly when we were children, um, which is really sad. And um, and that 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 is the way it was. But as a result, I, I, I suppose I led quite a kind of feral life from a very early age. And I really tried to escape the house as much as possible, spend a lot of time around uh, other people's houses. I was out in the streets. I got picked up by the police. I had a social worker. I had all sorts of things, you know, as a, as a young child. I was very basically an, pretty much a kind of out of control street kid. <laughs> Which I know is um, is is probably hard to believe looking at me now, but we all grow up, don't we? But that if I if I'd met me now, I would say I met a child like me. I was like, oh, there's one of those out of control street kids. Poor kid, you know, she's probably got some trouble at home. So that was me. <laughs> God, isn't it amazing that the transition, you know, and it's what sort of strings to mind almost is that expression? You know, this too shall pass. You know, it's that. That was then and, and this is now, you know, but um, do, do you know why your mother was like that? I mean, do, do you, are you clear on that or? Well, my mother was from an Irish background. Uh, obviously, you're Irish as well. Um, so she's, um, her mother, uh, they, what she used to tell me is that they had a lot of Irish maids and they used to bring over these girls from Ireland who were orphans. And they were very young, you know, they're probably like 11 or 12, and they would be put in charge of my mother. Now, if you think about it, if you put a traumatized, uh, a series of traumatized 11 or 12 year old uh, children in front, you know, if you put a young child in the care of those children, they're probably not getting the best care, shall we say. Um, so I know that she herself had quite a painful uh, childhood. And I don't really know because she didn't really talk about it a lot. But let's just say there was a lot of a lot of trauma and a lot of uh, challenge. And I could go into into more detail about it, but she would never talk about everything. But 
I know that she herself had a hard life. And of course, people that have a hard life, um, you know, they either get the help that they need and they manage to pull through or they just go under. And that is what happened. And I think really sadly, my mother went under. Also, my brother went under. He died of alcoholism at a very young age. Uh, my sister retreated into religion, which is fine. But she's very, very, very religious, um, which is, um, I don't know, if it keeps her happy, then that's great. Um, but I feel as though as though I, I know that I had them around me and I think that helped. But also I had an intervention when I was about 12 or 13, which was just such an incredible gift because my um, psychologist uh, said, what do you really, really, really want? And I said, I want to get away from home. I want to, I, I just don't want to live at home anymore. And she said, would you like to go to boarding school? And I was like, yeah, of course I would, you know, that would be great. So the government at the time, they were running this scheme for particularly troubled and vulnerable children like myself. And actually they were sending them to boarding schools. They just had like a small kind of cohort and they weren't care homes and they weren't boarding schools for delinquents. They were proper boarding schools. So I was actually sent because, and I think this was also to do with the fact that I was, I was intellectually gifted, shall we say. So, I mean, they recognized that. Um, but basically I was sent to this boarding school, which was, it wasn't the best boarding school, but it's, it's still around today. And I think it's a pretty good school, you know, it's got a good reputation. And um, I was sent there free of charge. I mean, when I say that, my parents didn't have to pay for it. And I was there until I was 18. And of course, for me, it was just absolutely like a dream come true. I really thought I'd just died and gone to heaven. And um, I'm so grateful for that opportunity, because that opportunity meant that I had a fantastic education. Obviously, you know, I speak a bit posh. So people think that I'm, a, you know, come from a different kind of background, not the background that I did. Although even actually I have to say I did go to a private school because my father was a finance director. So, I mean, you know, materially, it wasn't as if there was poverty. It's just, you know, there was emotional uh, difficulties. So I had a really, really good education and I'm very, very grateful for that. And I, the people that I met, the adults that I met at the boarding school, obviously there, there was a whole different range of people as there always are, but I met some amazing, amazing role models that were just so caring and so tolerant of me. And I know that when I arrived, I was a nightmare. I can even remember how badly I behaved. And it's just looking back, I'm like, oh, I, I really, really put them through the ringer and they were so patient and so loving. And that was the transformation and the break, breakthrough that I needed. So, uh, you know, here I am, um, live to tell the tale. And that was, yeah, that was it. What, what, did the, what did the boarding school give that, you know, you didn't have before? I mean, it sounds like there was a lot of opportunity there. There was a lot of expression. There was a lot of support is what's coming through. Is that fair? Well, yeah, at that particular time, they didn't really have any of these. If you go to a boarding school today, they'll have all sorts of extracurricular activities and, you know, the children will be will be kind of pushed into all sorts of sports that they're excelling at and, and so on, music lessons. I, I didn't have any of that. We basically had lessons and then after the lessons, we just hung around and, you know, talked to each other and sort of went out on the field and 
and you know smoke cigarettes behind the bicycle shed and the kind of things that all kids do really but um so i think the the main difference was that i just had stability routine the food was terrible i remember that it was really really bad um but you can't have everything um but really i had uh you know, when you're brought up in that kind of environment, um, you obviously you don't have a lot of attention, individual attention from adults as you would if you were brought up in a, say, functional family. So you are kind of you, what happens is you develop very, very strong bonds with your peers and they kind of replace your parents. And I don't really know what the lasting impact of that is. And I do know that in NA, for example, that's Narcotics Anonymous that my ex used to go to because he used to, he was a recovering addict. He used to work like 90% of them. But anyway, he used to go to these meetings in London. He used to say that they were absolutely full of old Etonians. And I do know people, and I do remember at the time, these kind of kids that used to, that they were just dropped off by their parents at the age of seven. And I remember walking past them and just seeing that my, I mean, even now I can remember their faces, just the anguish on their faces of these children basically being completely abandoned at a very, very young age. And I think um, sending children to boarding school, I don't think that it happens so much now, but it certainly was considered, particularly for boys, uh, the thing to do at a certain time and when they got to boarding school and this was this actually happened um, to many people that I know the, the there was a lot of corporal punishment and brutality because it was considered that that was the way to bring up a, a proper man um, and that happened at my boarding school as well I mean all the boys they always used to complain about the whippings and the beatings and the you know the cor corporal punishment uh, we never got it because we were spared it for some reason because we were girls. I never really understood why, but that was what that was what happened. So um, I didn't have any of that, and I was always popular. And by the time I uh, got there, I was quite streetwise as well. So I was always good at kind of standing up for myself. And I used to stand up for other kids. I was never I would never let people bully me or bully people who are my friends. So I was a bit of a kind of champion for the underdog. And um, so I, a bit of a leader, really. And and I think because of that, I, I just had a good time. Um, and of course, I was 13. So I wasn't like a kid. I wasn't like a little one of these sad little kids. And uh, I'm glad that they don't do that as much these days, because I'll tell you what, it was definitely a very... Uh, it, it was a pretty awful experience just, you know, for those children. I, my heart really went out for them. But it was, um, I'm very, very grateful that I had this opportunity. And the main thing is that it got me away from <clears throat> my home environment, which was a, a oh, it was a terrible place to, to be. Because, um, you know, my parents were constantly at loggerheads with each other. They would fight every night. Um there was it was really no place for a child a child to to grow up you know just we were just collateral <laughs> sad yeah in a way just a very different time wasn't it really as you say that you know stiff upper lip and children should be seen and not heard and you know 
packed off to boarding school, you know, but that actually was ironically, that was your, that was your um, relief, if you like, that was your, your, you know, that's the thing that saved you. Yeah, well, the fun, the funny thing thing is, because as I said, my mother did, you know, love me underneath it all I know. And I know that she felt a mm-hmm. lot of guilt and a lot of regret, really, later on in life. But what she tried to do, because, you know, she couldn't really have gone on holiday. We couldn't have gone on holiday as a family because my parents were, you know, so much at war with each other. It would have been absolutely intolerable for us all to be away together. But, but I think she wanted to give me the opportunity of being on holiday. So she used to send me away and she used to find these families. So I used to come back from boarding school and then she would found a family to send me to. And I never really know why that was but I went to uh, LA when I was 14 and she just sent me away and um, I had the most amazing experience so I stayed with this with this family in Palos Verdes and the, the guy was the headmaster of Beverly Hills High School and um, I just had the most phenomenal summer just being treated as one of the family and kind of taken around all these incredible places in the Hollywood Bowl and Palm Springs. And, you know, I honestly, I just thought that I died and gone to heaven. I mean, it was very, very difficult to come back from that. And I don't know how she managed to pull that off, whether I don't think she paid. I think it was... uh, you know, I did it as a swap or whatever, but the children never came back because we couldn't have hosted people. I just don't know. But I did have some really um, great experiences, but never with my parents. Never, never. We were never, never went anywhere or did anything as a family. Interesting, isn't it? You know, it's but despite it all, it sounds, as you say, she was trying to protect you by almost pushing you away to, to get you away from herself or the situation. Yes, I think so. Uh, very much so. Yes. Um, and uh, it's, isn't it sad? You know, it really is a shame because, um, you know, it's uh, families, families are so different, so diverse, but I'm sure that she would have wanted to have had a close relationship with me. And I th- actually think that I was her favourite. I can say that because, and I don't really know why, but I think my sister and my brother felt that as well. I think because I was quite an undemanding child, I would just, you know, just, I, I don't really know. But uh, so I think she wanted to love me, but in reality, um, she just wasn't wasn't really able to put that into action in any way other than a small way. But, you know, I hang on to those small ways because we always want our parents to, you know, to to love us. And we want to have that bond and have that kind of, you know, that special relationship. But at the same time, I also have to own my reality and say, look, actually, it was pretty, pretty tough and a lot tougher than it has been for my children and a lot tougher than it is for a lot of other children, to be frank not as bad as it was as it was or is for some other children because a lot of children have it a lot worse and I know that um, but I really really care about the experience of, of children and you know if I had more time which I don't at the moment but this is something that I'm planning to do in the future um, I particularly care about children of um, addicts 
because they do have a terrible time. A lot of the time, you know, the parents, obviously, they'll spend the money on whatever substance it is that they're addicted to. So um, children in um, homes of addicts, uh, they're often very malnourished. Um, nobody really knows why they're so thin or scrawny. They don't really get looked after properly. Their shoes don't fit because nobody takes them, you know, to get their feet measured or any of those things. They're quite often smelly. So what happens is they get, um, and it certainly wasn't that way for me because, you know, my mother actually did look after us physically. That's the other thing. But, you know, when it when it gets really out of hand and certainly in poorer uh, families and I didn't come from a poor family really I mean my father did have money and he had a good job but um, there are plenty of children living in the world today and in the UK um, who are living in atrocious circumstances with parents who are addicts and they don't have enough food and they don't have adequate clothing and they go to school and because they are misfits and they get bullied at school and you know, th those are the children that I really care about. So, you know, a few years down the line, when I made my fortune and written my books, and <laughs> then I'm going to help those children. What would you do? I mean, what would you say to yourself, or what would you do different for yourself if you if you were able to go back and have a chat with you? Ah, oh, that's an interesting question, Pete. So, um, I think I would say. Um, I would say, hang on in there. It will get better for starters. Uh, you're not alone. That is the thing, because I spent my entire childhood feeling alone. And this is the thing that I realised with force um, a few years ago when everything came crashing down for me. And I know that we talked about this before, but basically all sorts of things kind of happened very, very quickly um, Altogether, so I was diagnosed with cancer, nearly lost my life. It was quite bad. Um, and it was breast cancer. And I, you know, had the full works and all sorts of things. My husband had an affair and ran off overnight. And of course, that was not very, very nice thing to happen. So he just left me with the house and, you know, emptied the bank accounts and took the car and just in a really kind of horrible way, he really behaved, behaved badly. And this was somebody who I had trusted and I'd been with for many, many years. And I hadn't done anything to him to warrant that behaviour. It's just, uh, I guess, maybe if I'm being generous, I would say there was some fear there that he thought maybe I would not treat him fairly. I, I don't really know, which was, you know, would not have been the case. But anyway, that happened. Then I got involved with some um, bad guys in property who really shafted me, I have to say. So I lost some money through them. And all of this kind of happened all at once. So I moved house. I was all by myself. Um, and <clears throat> I realized, and this is where my movement, the Smart Connector, came from. I realized where I'd gone wrong all those years. And it all traced back to my childhood. And I remember very, very precisely the moment when I decided that I was all alone in the world. And that that was the belief that I carried throughout my childhood right up until that point. And that was all those things that happened were a result of that belief that I am alone in the world. And what happened is um, I used to have to go home at boarding school um, some weekends and obviously during the holidays. And my sister, who was quite a lot older than me, 
was a social worker in London and she used to come and visit me sometimes. And so I remember one night I was just feeling really, really distressed about the thought of having to go home. And it had just been gnawing at me all day. And I just been thinking, I just can't face it. I just can't face it. I, ha- I can't go home. So I couldn't sleep. And then I, I got up and it was probably about midnight or something. And I kind of crept down the corridor and down the stairs, this phone box at the end of the corridor. And I called my sister and she's like, Jane, you know, why are you calling me this time of night? I said, I can't go home. I need you to come and get me. I can't do it anymore. And she said, Jane, I can't look after you. I, you know, I can only look after myself. Then my money ran out. This is before the era of mobile phones and the phone went dead. And at that time, I remember very precisely this thought of, I can't rely on anybody else but myself. I am alone. I am alone in this world. And the only person that is going to make a difference to me is me. And you might think, well, yeah, maybe that's that's right, you know, because at the end of the day, you know, you live and you die alone. But that thought, what it did is it destroyed um, the truth, the truth that underlies humanity which is that we are all connected. And if you go all the way back through history and you go to the ancient philosophers, you even go to the Bible, you go to any wise person, they will all make reference to the fact that we are all one at a cellular level. We're all connected to one another. We're all connected to the universal force, whatever that is. We're connected to nature, to the birds, the bees, you know, everything in life at a cellular level is all one. So if we say, if we break off and we say we are alone, if we tell ourselves repeatedly, I'm alone, no one's going to come to my rescue. Um, It's only me that can make a difference to my life. Then you are cutting yourself off from the source of power. I know it's getting a bit deep. But um, it took all of those things to happen to me and literally decades of challenge and pain and struggle and obviously triumphs as well because I had a lot of success in my career. But when I really reached rock bottom, I actually realised the truth. And that is why I'm so passionate about the topic of connection. Um, And obviously my book, The Smart Connector, that's, a start, if you like, because that is about the subject of connection in the entrepreneurial context and why people need to come before profit in business for businesses to be the most successful versions of themselves. But it actually goes so much deeper. And that's why, yeah, ultimately, I want to take that message to the world to make people understand that they aren't alone in this world and that there is always resource for them in abundance as long as they accept that and if they don't accept it and this is very very common with what i call acoas adult child of alcoholics it is our character trait to believe to we're all high achievers we're all um overachievers really and we take on too much responsibility because we we have that belief. We grew up with this belief because nobody looked after us. You know, nobody actually, uh, we didn't have that nurturing presence in our, in our lives. 
And, um, you know, it's something that um, it's difficult. It's difficult to be an ACOA and be the most powerful version of yourself because it is a bit like kind of carrying a sack of stones on your back and, you know, climbing a mountain uh, because, um, you know, we, we didn't have a great start in life, but that's why the connection thing is so powerful and so important because it's everything. It's everything. It's people. It's only people that can lift us higher. And we have to learn to reach out. We have to learn to engage with people and to ask for the help and the support that we need and to be able to also eliminate uh, the users because, um, you know, people like us, we are more prone to exploitation and, um, you know, because we, we have got a bit of a, uh, a missing link, if you like. I, I hope that makes sense. It's getting a bit deep, isn't it? But I think people find these, these things interesting, don't they? What really mm -hmm. makes people tick? I mean, it's... Put it, put it in this, I mean, it, it almost, in some ways, at times there, it comes across, it's like almost the world v. Jane, you know, it's, it's you know, and, and I mean, did you ever sort of think, God, is it really worth it, you know, for the amount of uphill battle, or, or are you just genetically different, is that? Well, I'm a bit of a, bit of a scrapper, should we say, you know, I mean, I, I, uh, I always think of myself as... <laughs> I guess it's part of my part of my identity, really. I always think of myself as kind of a bit like the playground scrapper because, um, you know, I have I, I had a younger brother that I used to have to look after because poor guy, you know, he was, as I said, he went to this school where he was relentlessly tormented and, you know, th there was all that corporal punishment because he was at one of these very harsh kind of private boys' schools as well where they thought that was how you made a boy into a man. So, so he had a terrible, terrible time, um, really, as a small child. So I always had to kind of look after him, stand up for him, you know, go and he, he was so cowed that he used to get bullied. So I used to have to go and, you know, stand up for the neighborhood bullies. And then, as I said, when I went to school, then I saw the same, the same kids, you know, the same kids who were a little bit clueless, a little bit different. And I recognized that they needed that they needed, uh, you know, my help, really. So I love to, it's one of my hobbies in a way, I do love to stand up to bullies. Um, and I, I uh, when I'm standing in my strength and my power, uh, then I, put, I love to push back. And so I am not by nature the kind of person that will give up. I would not give in to despair to the point where I would want to kill myself or it just doesn't go with my nature I'm I'm a fighter um, and that's a very important part of my uh, identity and I will never ever stop fighting and I think that's the thing that um, you know made me overcome the cancer um, and really although I had it very badly um, I didn't give in I just fought and and today you know I'm cancer-free, that's nine years later, never, ever had a relapse. Um, and I don't really know, you know, where that spirit of survival comes from, but my father's actually very resilient. He's 96, can you believe? Still going strong. And um, yeah, I think he's a little bit like that as well, in a way. I mean, he came from really the slums of Liverpool. His father left school at 11, he, he left school at 14. 
he didn't have very much at all. He had nothing, you know, whether working class. And he um, became a finance director of a PLC with a disability because he was also deaf. So I think um, you've got to admire that, really. I mean, he, he uh, yeah, he was a very, very driven and relentless, um, relentlessly ambitious person. And I think I probably get some of that from him. <laughs> <laughs> just as an observer i think there's certainly some there's some traits there that might be quite similar <laughs> that's right pete how about you i'm interested to hear about your background because you've asked me a lot of questions about mine tell me yeah. about yours mine's you know what it's um it's different in many ways you know oh, it's different it's, it, my background is very ordinary per se you know in, in terms of you know mother and father and all but um yeah it's it's always I always find it, you know, I look back now and think at how lucky and how privileged I am, you know, um, what's, you know, sort of what went on. And that's the one thing about talking to so many people on the show that, listen, it's all shapes and makes and creatures and different things of, of what goes on. You, and you never know, you know, and that's what's the thing to, to know somebody. you got to walk a mile in their shoes and it's impossible to, you know, how someone, as you say, becomes a scrapper or how somebody becomes who they are or um you know that expression you know to see the to see the light you got to sometimes see the dark you know and, and that's what strikes me and even your own story there i think you know it's it's phenomenal how that uh you know that sort of that tenacity you know that absolute resilience to grow and to thrive you know and, and absolutely tip my hat to you for that thank you well uh, you know, really, it's just a part a part of me. It's just part of my makeup. It's not something that I have to get up and uh, work on consciously. It's just I'm I'm very determined, and I've always been a very determined person that I'm not going to be beaten, uh, or um, I just don't. I just won't give in. I'm very stubborn in a way, and that is good in some respects, maybe not so good in others, but. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to give in. <laughs> it's interesting. You talked about being quite trusting and, and, you know, I suppose I'm curious about that because, you know, and, and you were saying when you come in, coming into the boarding school, you were sort of almost maybe a little hard to handle. I think it was, you know, along those lines you were suggesting. So, but that would almost suggest a self-defense mechanism to keep people away that you create a, you know, create a forefront, you know, um, but yet later on you become very trusting on the other side. I'm, I'm curious. Well, yeah, uh, trust is a really is a really interesting issue, isn't it? Because fundamentally I am actually very distrustful of people. Um, but uh, you have to, you can't go through life distrusting people. I mean, I've worked for decades in a very male environment and a very male business environment, very high level business environment, where people are always looking to take things from other people really effectively for their own gain. Uh, so, you know, this I, this comes up again and again and again, and I I've, I've have it all the time. I still have it. Um, and you can't really blame other people or retreat because people try and do that you just have to deal with it um because if you you're in that environment if you're swimming with the sharks then you know the sharks are going to try and bite um really um so so i've had that for many many years and i suppose because of that i've seen people's greed at first hand 
I've seen how people are willing to uh, use other people quite ruthlessly and, and, you know, without a second thought a lot of the time. Um, at times myself, I obviously have been the victim of that, for sure, uh, because, you know, I haven't always made the right decisions around people, and I hope that I'm wiser now um, as a result of my experiences. But um, trust is trust is a, is, is a, a it's one of those things that you cannot go through life without being open to people. So you have to dust yourself down when you've had a bad experience and not say, I'm not going to work with other people. I'm only going to work with myself and just, you know, I'm going to retreat into my family. I'm not going to go on social media or have anything to do with the world. I mean, people can do that, but there is a cost to behaving like that. And if you really want to get the most out of life and get the most out of the world that you inhabit, you have to go out there and engage with people over and over again, because um, people are everything. They are, people and relationships are the route to growth, happiness, success, uh, fulfillment. Anything and everything that you need in life comes through people. But you have to, I know it's a cliche to say you have to kiss a lot, a lot of frogs before you find the prince. But um, let, let's just say nobody is the prince, right? But uh, there will be some people who are good for you and they can lift you higher um and that is as oprah winfrey said you know we all need to be surrounded by people who lift us higher but in order to find those people what tends to happen is we have to engage with people who they show their true colors after a while and then we realize hey, wait a minute these people are they are going to drag us down rather than lift us higher and at that point you have to kind of extricate yourself and and move on um, and, you know, that that is a it is a difficult process. It is genuinely challenging. But the answer is not to not trust. That's what I think. Um, you have to extend trust to people, give them the benefit of the doubt, give them the opportunity to show their true colours. And then you have to be strong enough to walk away. And that is true in personal as well as professional life. Just out of curious, what would be your core values? I mean, trust is mentioned a lot there. Is, is that one of your core values that you know of? So I went through this exercise a few years ago when I did the Landmark uh, Forum. And it was funny, they just came, we'd just been sitting there and they said, right, now it's time to establish your three uh, values. So what you've got to do, you've got like about two minutes to think about what matters to you most. Think about three words and then you just walk around the room and tell everybody what those three words are. So funnily enough, I just wrote down love, courage and truth. Now, love was actually high on a lot of people's um, list, but not many people had courage and truth. Some people had freedom. They had all sorts of things. But I live my life by love, courage and truth. And what that means is that uh, it's kind of like a North Star if you have those values. So everything that I do, I try to do in a loving way. So I try not to hurt people unnecessarily I try to be a good person and to enhance their lives so that's love um, courage basically well I mean hopefully you've heard that I am a courageous person I stand for the I stand up for 
um, people who are weaker than myself because I'm a very strong person, you know, because I, I've been through a lot and I've come out the other side and I've been through a lot of things that a lot of other people haven't. So I have a lot of courage. Um, and that is very much a kind of, um, I like to say the unsayable um, as well, you know, so that comes from courage, you know, the things that other people are frightened to say or do, I will do them um, if I think they're the right thing to do. And so I like to be a leader in that respect. Um, and then truth, uh, I'm obsessed with truth because um, the thing about growing up in a family of addiction is that it's lies, you grow up with lies, you know, you're expected to accept lies, even though you know, I mean, it's called the elephant in the room, um, you know, in, in uh, recovery circles, but the idea that um, everybody is not supposed to mention what the real problem is. So if you uh, if you're in a uh, in a relationship with some with with an addict, you're not really supposed to mention the substance or the fact that there are that bottles hidden all over the house or that you know there's like all these packets of pills everywhere or you you know that that uh, somebody goes to bed all afternoon and just basically does nothing with their lives. I mean, these are the kind of things that that people do or of course if they're addicted to street drugs they just spend all their time trying to get drugs and they don't do anything else with their life you know uh, or they shoplift the one thing you're not supposed to mention is the real problem so um i grew up i grew up in an environment of, of phenomenal lies so i cannot stand lies and the truth to me matters more than anything so i always like to tell the truth obviously this is a very truthful interview um, I don't sugarcoat things and um, I really, really love people who don't sugarcoat things with me. It's, a, you know, I value it uh, very, very highly. Makes sense though, doesn't it? I mean, especially when you've had so many variables, so many hidden messages, you know, and you talked about arguments going on in the home and things like that. And it's just going, just tell me it straight because it cuts through so much stuff, right? Yes. Um, but of course you, you can't, uh, you can't really have that um, in, a, in, a, in a home where there's an active addiction going on. Um, the truth only really comes in if, if that, the addict goes into recovery because they're in denial, you see, and, and uh, they maintain that uh, denial by everybody else um, being in denial also around them, kind of developing these dysfunctional um, you know, family patterns. So for example, um, is quite common in some, um, you know, addicted um, homes, for example, for the children to actually take on the parental role. So, for example, I would say that, uh, you know, I did my best with my brother, my sister, because she was older than me. She was, it was very confusing. I felt like she was my mother, not my sister, because she was the only one that did the kind of things that, a mother uh, would do like come and visit me when I was at boarding school and um, and you know take me out and ask me if I was okay um, so I only had like crumbs because obviously she was only my my sister um, but what tends to happen is that children in those kind of environments quite often they end up looking after the parent because the parent isn't really capable of looking after themselves let alone them um, so it's all um, if you actually confronted all of those lies, the whole the whole family system would fall apart. 
So that's why um, that's why it's important, really, to um, maintain maintain those lies. But it's crazy making, you know, it really is. And um, yeah, it's uh, one of those one of those uh, reasons why a lot of a lot of ACOA, should we should we say, when they're um, adults, you know, they have to get support and they have to they have to have people who are around them who are actually saying, no, this isn't you. You're not crazy. This really is the truth. Um, and again, you know, that that is what connection is all about. You know, you have to have people who are on your side and say, you know what? Yeah, yeah, actually, uh, this really is happening. It's not just you. It's not just your crazy head all over again. Do you find that a lot? I mean, do you do you still do you talk to yourself a lot? Do you, how's your how's your inner voice? Let's say. Uh, I, talk, I talk to I talk to people a lot, so I've got a lot of um, you know, should we say, conf- confidants who are you know in my corner. That that is a thing that I need. Um, but in terms of, of of talking talking to myself, you have to have a relationship with yourself. You cannot. Um, you know, you cannot just go through life engaging with other people and never really listening to your own inner voice. And I think other people, I think people do that in different ways. So I have a dog. So I tend to go for very long walks with my dog in nature. I'm very fortunate to live in a very beautiful part of the world where I can just go on a long walk with the dog. And, you know, walking is one of those things. It's quite meditative, isn't it? And you know, you really, um, I find that I personally unwind that way. I know other people, uh, they very, very much devotees of meditation. And they say that, you know, meditation is when those thoughts come up and you just observe them and you let them go. Um, but you observe them. And that's the important thing. So other people, of course, you know, maybe they do a lot of therapy or counseling or coaching or whatever. But we all need to have that um relationship with ourselves and that connection with ourselves otherwise we become very very weak and I think about the times in my life when I was weak so for example when I was a single parent and I was um, building up this this business I really lost myself because it was life went in a blur you know I was just so um, busy should we say, but also that like the massive responsibility, which I had taken on board of actually growing this business very, very fast, flying around the world, um, you know, just, it was just a crazy existence while I had these young children that I wasn't seeing. And then of course, um, you know, I would just go home. This is the, this is the existence of a lot of single working parents. You know, as soon as you can get away, you just go home and then you start your new job, which is basically looking after the home and the children and, um, you know, you're not really having any fun because, um, because, you know, you've got no support. There's nobody there in the background kind of helping you. It's the child carers left. OK, you might have a cleaner. They've gone. Uh, but, you know, you still got to run a household and you still got to look after the kids. And um, so at that particular time, I was very weak. I know that I was very, very weak and very um vulnerable really for the wrong people to come into my life and that is exactly what happened at that time so um learning the lesson from that never ever get too busy I would say to anybody to make time for yourself and to actually um have some daily time whatever it is that you do whether it's um 
whether it is meditation or, or walking or talking to friends, sometimes it's just that, isn't it? Just picking up the phone and having a really honest conversation with someone or going out and maybe finding those people that you can have really honest conversations with. All of those things, they all count, but you have to do it daily to be the, most, the strongest version of yourself. That's what I believe. Are there, I mean, do you, you talked about versions of yourself there. I mean, are you who you want to be? Are you able to express yourself for you? Or, you know, do you, is there a bit of a gap there, do you think? Oh, no, no, no. I'm, I'm very, very much uh, an open book. And, you know, what you see is what you get. I mean, genuinely. And I know a lot of people um, say that. And actually, what you see is not what you get, because a lot of people, um, a lot of people are far less transparent to themselves than they think they are. They don't really understand themselves because they don't take the time to invest in themselves and invest in personal growth and development. And I particularly found that on the dating scene, um, that the people, I think there's a big difference between people that have worked on themselves and who do that daily as a, as a daily discipline and a practice and people who don't. And the gap, becomes very, very wide after a number of years. Um, and I don't think either camps really particularly understand one another quite well. So, you know, some people, they, if they were looking at this video, they'd think she's a complete weirdo, very eccentric. And, you know, what on earth is she on about? That's fine. Because not everybody is your type of people, are they? So we all have to find our tribe, don't we? Absolutely. I mean, it's finding what works for you. And as you say, and, and you mentioned landmark and you, you know, talking about personal development, there, there's sometimes there could be two camps, right? You know, the people go, yeah, not for me. Thanks very much. And other people, it becomes a, a full immersive world, if you like. I mean, where, where do you sit? Well, I mean, the navel gazing is, uh, um, you know, I think there comes a point where you also have to have to put it down and you have to go out and make a difference to the world. And, you know, sometimes I, I come across people who, let's just say they've had a lot of success in life, they've got a lot of money, and all they spend their time doing is just basically having a good time. So they will, you know, whatever it is that they want to do, you know, play sports and just basically have fun with their life. And I think, um, you know, along with that, uh, should we say, kind of uh, self-scrutiny, um, I think has to come an attitude of service. And for me, that would never be good enough just to be somebody that had time on my hands and money and was not actually doing something to make a difference to other people. So I think it's all, it's all a balance, isn't it? Because if you go too far the other way, you see people who selflessly serve and because they're not serving themselves as well, or they're not engaging in that self-scrutiny uh, or whatever, they then become quite martyrish, if you know what I mean, because they're like, I'm doing so much, you know, for, for you or for them or whatever, and nobody's looking after me. Well, it's your responsibility to look after you and to find a life that is, that is in balance for you and is your, your type of life. But the second responsibility, in my view anyway, and this is just, just a view, uh, is to start, you know, find a way to look after other people and to make a difference to other people, a meaningful difference, contribution. 
Um, and then after that, uh, by all means, you know, go and go and have fun and, you know, go on lots of shopping trips and, you know, join expensive tennis and golf clubs or whatever it is that you do. Uh, I'm not criticizing anybody for doing that, but I do think uh, people who have a privilege in their lives in the form of time and or money uh, should really, um, you know, make a contribution to the society that they live in and in whatever way is most meaningful to them. Wow. I mean, are you, are you clear on your purpose now? I mean, do you know what your, your, your purpose and mantra is for life? <laughs> well, unsurprisingly, Pete, yes. <laughs> um, so my purpose is really to, to bring, um, to bring connection to the world and to empower people through connection. So first of all, I want to empower entrepreneurs through connection and connection exists on so many different levels. It's a fundamental human law in my uh, view. So you have connection to self, you have connection to others, and then you have connection to many. So obviously we've talked about connection to self and connection to others. The connection to many is um, fortunately today, for example, what we're doing through this podcast is we are uh, facilitating connection to many. We are bringing this message or these, you know, this interview's outlook or whatever that, you know, my life experience and lessons with your facilitation to a, a large potential audience. And isn't that amazing? Um, so connection to many is really about bringing your message to the wider world, a wider audience, having an impact, making a contribution, making a difference. Um, but there's also obviously a commercial impact. Um, there's a commercial and entrepreneurial um, reason for connection as well. And that is when you go into the realm of the stuff that I do commercially, which is to do with um, really, uh, you know, getting a very, um, a very laser precision message out to your ideal uh, people via certain channels that work in a joined up way. So um, there is a commercial application for smart connection, if you like, and there is a non-commercial and more sort of holistic application. But I just see it as a, a fundamental movement and a law. Um, and, and I want to bring that to the world. I want the world to be a more truthful and a more congruent and a better place because I'm enrolling people into my movement of smart connection, if you like. Um, and yeah, I mean, the lessons have been hard learned, you know, so why would I not want to empower other people and inspire other people so they don't have to go through that pain or that hardship themselves? So that's it. <laughs> do, you, do you believe you, you are where you're supposed to be now? Definitely, definitely. I don't think I've ever been in a better place in my life. The only thing that I would like is I would like a life partner um, to you know, to join me on the journey with. And that's something that I haven't really, um, you know, been fortunate enough to to find yet. And, you know, my friends, the people that speak to me, they say, look, Jane, you know, it's not the right time, really, you know, because you're so busy and you've got you've got this um, you, you, you've got all of this uh, work that you've got to do in, in terms of rolling out your message, your movement, your, uh, you know, programs, your commercial work, whatever. 
um, it's probably just not the right time. And when it is the right time, then the right person will appear. And so I probably, the wrong thing, if I was to advise myself, I'd probably say, Jane, you know, just, just stop looking. You know, that person will arrive. They will find you. But that's something that I find hard to do because I am a very relationship-orientated person. And I do have uh, a lot of a lot of love to give. And, um, you know, so I would like like to have a, a partner in life. But that apart from that, I would say that my life is is really, really heading in the right direction. And I'm so excited about everything that's going on, really. Well. And, and, you know, the, the most fantastic thing of all is that I make I didn't think that I was even going to be here at all. So what really matters to me more than anything is that I have three girls who are 25, 22 and 18, and I'm actually here to make a difference to them. And that was the thing that was so painful to me when I had my uh, cancer diagnosis, and which had a, yeah, I had a poor prognosis. So I didn't think that I was going to live. Um, and that really hurt because having grown up more or less motherless myself, that was that made me very very sad so every day i'm just so thrilled just to be alive just to be able to go out in nature with my dog just to be able to make a difference to my children just to have amazing opportunities like this one today to talk to you pete so yeah i'm i'm happy definitely what are you capable of then what's your potential um yeah so uh <laughs> so i i would say um I, I'm a strong believer in limitless potential. You know, we all have we all have so much more potential than we really believe. And I think there's a quote, and I'm afraid I don't know it off by heart, but there is a quote about how about what we're really afraid of, and what we're really afraid of is our own power more than anything. And I I think if I'm really uh, truthful with myself. Um, it's that, if you like, that upper limit problem. Um, and I, I was actually reminded of this the other, the other day because I was listening to a podcast about it, but there is a book um, written by this guy called Gay Hendricks called The Upper Limit. No, I don't know whether it's called that, but he writes about the upper limit. And uh, the idea is that we're all kind of preset with this upper limit beyond which we are catapulted outside our comfort zone, if you like. And what tends to happen is we tend to sabotage success once we get to that place. So um, I do believe that I have huge, still have huge potential, even, you know, later in my life. Uh, there is so much living still to be done, so much ahead. Um, and the only thing that really is holding me back is my own um you know, upper limit issues. So that's that's, if you like, a challenge that I myself have to uh, have have to look at really. And I think we all have to look at that because you know we we can all we can all conquer the world if we really believe it possible. But it's that possibility thinking, isn't it? It's not not as easy as people think. Hmm. Well, I mean, what I mean, you you sort of intimated there slightly about you know personal development things like that. I mean, are you what you've said? Do you still sort of ferociously read and and listen and grow? I mean, what's what's your learning style and and yeah, so so um, 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I am a massive, a massive reader. And I mean, it's not just uh, personal development. I mean, I, I do. I've read probably most of the classic personal development books out there. And I, you know, I dip back into them from time to time. So at the moment, um, it's uh, Psycho-Cybernetics is the one that I'm just dipping into again. I love uh, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. I would say that is my Bible of all time. I really love that book. Um, obviously, there are some fantastic kind of younger people that I watch and I follow on YouTube. I like Jay Shetty. Um, I like uh, Matthew Hussey on the relationship stuff. He's incredibly wise. And you probably might not have heard of him, but he's like a kind of dating guru. But he's just a young guy who's he's got a lot of wisdom. Um, I actually really like Rob Moore's stuff around personal development. He's one of my mentors. And some of the things that he said to me uh, have really gone a long way. So he's got some wisdom. I think partly because his um, mentor is also John Demartini, who I also studied under. Um, and John Demartini, again, uh, you know, his thinking and his um, books, and in fact, spending that weekend with him, which I did with the training, was absolutely transformational in terms of me understanding other people's motivations and actually getting some perspective um, on this issue of uh, challenge and reward. Because his, you know, what he asserts is that for every challenge, there is a parallel benefit. And so that's a kind of interesting concept. And he also says that everybody will act according to their own values. So, um, so you know, the, the, the key to getting along with other people is really to understand and communicate through their values. And what that is, is, is what's most important to them at any given time. So your values are neutral. You know, they're not something that are either good or bad. They're just what's most important to you. Um, so they're fairly sophisticated concepts. Um, and, but, but, in a way, they're also simple. And I think, um, you know, that's what I like about, yeah, about about his work and about some of the other people that I've mentioned, that they are able to do that thing of synthesizing uh, concepts that other people might find a little bit kind of woo-woo and just making them simple. So that's all good. But, you know, I also have very, very uh, strong interests in the area of business and business growth. And yeah, I'm very interested in financial crime <laughs> uh, that's one of my one of my my interests and in international money laundering and <laughs> you know those other kind of things I find quite interesting but what is it about that uh, well because really I'm very interested in human psychology so I'm reading a, a book at the moment about the oligarchs and you know it's just a just a hobby really I I, I mean I don't like all the kind of low-level grisly murders and stuff. I mean, that's not there. <laughs> I don't like any of that. But I think when you read about uh, the sophisticated uh, crime, what you kind of realise is that these people, they are very, very smart businessmen a lot of the time, or business women. Um, and unfortunately, they've just kind of, it's just developed in a slightly warped way. Because they, so something must have happened, whether it was their upbringing or their um, psychology or whatever, that has meant that they are not equipped with a conscience. 
So therefore, um, they're very, very clever. They're like sociopaths, the people that do this stuff. Um, and I've had a few experiences myself where I've been approached by people who have obviously with some property experience of being in and around, let's just say, ultra high net worth circles in London. Uh, I've met some people myself who have absolutely uh, shocked me, should we say, with the, some of the proposals that they've made, you know, on the... I mean, I can't go into it in, in great detail because obviously I can't name names or anything like that. But um, a lot of it goes on in London. There's a lot of a lot of money laundering still going on. And um, I'm just interested in the reasons why people engage in that stuff. And I'm also interested in the cleverness of it. And, um, yeah, all of that legal and financial shenanigans you know, because it makes you a wiser person and a, a better person, I think, when it comes to, to business as well, to understand the shadow side, shall we say, as well as the legit side. So, um, so yeah. Um, but, you know, if you're watching this and you're a money launderer, don't waste your time. I'm not going to help you um, <laughs> because I am on the other side. I'm squeaky clean. <laughs> <laughs> if you weren't doing what you're doing, what would you be doing? Uh, so it's probably sitting on a beach writing books, Pete, <laughs> um, with my children. Um, that, that would be great. And, you know, surrounded by a whole load of animals. Um, yeah, that would pretty much be a perfect life for me. I like that. Yeah, it's <laughs> nice. Who, who doesn't want to sit in the beach, on the beach and write books? It's, it sounds like beautiful. Yeah, you, you can come and join me. <laughs> yeah, so I have a whole writing club, you know. It's like, yeah, yeah. Watch, watch the tide come and go. Exactly. I, it would have to be in the Caribbean, though. That's my favorite place. Well, mustn't, if it has to be, it has to be, you know. It's, it does, yeah. You, you do have to have your standards. Yeah. What's what's sort of a guilty pleasure for you, Jane, without, without the guilt, though? <laughs> That's a great question. So... Um, uh, guilty pleasure. Um, oh, I, you know, I, I mean, I like uh, sugar. <laughs> um, you know. Is there any particular form or just straight sugar? You know, if I really, really had to like a really guilty pleasure that I would probably have like a cream tea at Claridge's with a glass of champagne. You Sounds know, that, that would be again. pretty good, you know, because you get like that fat and sugar hit and then you get a little bit woozy from the champagne and uh you'd be in a nice environment and hopefully with good company so i think that might be a guilty pleasure so as guilt oh. goes that sounds awful awful yeah you know? yeah and i also you know like a bit of pampering you know it's nice to yeah do that that thing that most women like of having a facial and you know having uh having your hair done all of those things that we women we women enjoy well, so what I mean, what leisure and pleasure for you, where does that set? What's so I haven't really got a lot of leisure in my life at the moment because I am working very, very hard to, to uh, right at the moment to set up this business, which by the time the podcast um, is released, it will be launched. Um, but the leisure stuff, obviously, traveling is something that I think most people enjoy, experience different cultures, different countries. Uh, obviously, we haven't been able to do that recently because of because of lockdown and, uh, you know, all of the issues around that. Um, so in the future, I think probably more more travel. Um, and yeah, I, that, that's it. But I think we can always that's the beauty of books, because we can always travel to places we can even, you know, watching TV, Netflix series or whatever. There's 
we can travel around the world, can't we, from the comfort of our own home? Not quite the same, but yeah, all of that stuff's fun, isn't it? Mm. What's what's some bucket list stuff for you then? What's what's a way out there? What's coming in? Oh, well, as I said, honestly, I would be happy if I just saw out my days sitting on a beach writing a book. Um, so you know that that is my basically my my bucket list. It's not too ambitious. Um, so just um, yeah, just just doing that really. The more the more I can the more I can write, the the happier I am because it just. For me, it is literally just a formula for happiness. When I start writing, I just feel myself going down and down and down into a happy place. Mm. Isn't that amazing when you actually have the ability to feel that? And I realized that it took me until after I had children to realize that because when my children were very small, um, my husband was, you know, away all the time. He didn't really contribute, really. So I was... You know, it's very intense when you've got like three young children and so on. But there was a time in the middle of the day when they weren't with me. And also I used to work after school as well because I ran this business. So I just started writing for a couple of hours a day. And I was actually writing a fiction book at the time. And it was a science fiction book. I never got it published. But anyway, I, I like all of a sudden I realized, you know what? I just absolutely love this. And it just makes me feel happy. And when you when you kind of get to that place, some people get it through painting, for example. My friend who's very passionate about painting, some people get it through sports. I mean, do you, do you have something, Pete, that you absolutely love doing that it just makes you happy? I love talking to people. I love this. Talking to people. You're a people person through and through. So mm. the thing that everybody has their thing, you know, and I think when you found it um, and, and when you just think, you know what, this is just so great. Um then it becomes quite addictive, doesn't it? You just want to do more of it. Why not? Why wouldn't you? It's as you say. It's almost the psychology. It's it's sort of yeah, you know. As if it if it brings you pleasure and serves you, then well, that's that's kind of I mean the icky guy process and a few other things, you know. And saying well, if you're if you're doing what you love to do and you're passionate about it, you'll never work a day in your life, right? You know. That's right, and that's really the whole uh, concept of fire in the belly, isn't it? Yes. That's what it's all about. I mean, I, you know, we talk about you know with people there. It's it's all about success, you know. But success could be the fact you're alive today. It could be that you're a multi gazillionaire. It could be that you're sitting on a beach writing a book. I mean, it's it's mm-hmm. personal, right? You know, and and you know that's the beautiful thing about it. It's it's wherever it is, but. I think once you find your fire in the belly or your passion, that's the thing, you know, and you know, right. You, you met, you meet people and you go, you just love what you do, don't you? It's like, yeah. And you get well paid for it. <laughs> yeah. Because, you, because you, you, you carry that energy, don't you? And I think when people are living out their purpose, they become very, um, they have a certain energy about them mm. and it's a, it is a happy energy. It's a fulfilled kind of energy. And you can see those people because they're just alive. They're just more alive than other people, aren't they? And so um, I, yeah, I mean, I, I would really, um, I know that I'm not always in that place, but that's just real life because we all have lives to live. But I do try and find as much time as I can in the day to get down to some writing. And actually, uh, fortunately, uh, my the work that I do now 
it requires quite a lot of that. So that's all good. All good. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. And, it's, and it is down, right? Because, you know, it's interesting what one person's meditation would be and, and some of the things, you know, as you say, you're going down, down, down to your happy place. Well, that's probably what people talk about with meditation. You find the core you and who you are. And, and it's like, if that's your meditation or if that's your, you know, that's your Gaia, then great. Fantastic. You know, what, what better thing to be doing? Yeah. I mean, the only thing, the only thing about it is that it's, um, you know, it, it's a very cerebral thing, isn't it? And, you know, you're not really moving your body, you know, so, so it has to be balanced. I mean, I don't think it's really feasible to write for like 12 hours, eight or 12 hours a day. I think, I think, you know, you, you probably four hours maximum, and then you just have to go out and move your body because we are physical creatures, aren't we? We need to, you know, we need to use our physical body and get that physical energy going as well. Um, but it's all it's all to do with kind of having that balance, I guess. Yeah, it's well, funny. I inter- interviewed a guy and uh, I must admit, I was really struck, but his, so his goal was to write 12 books uh, in the following year. Oh, wow. And, you know, and you kind of go, okay, well, it sounds a bit, uh, bit heavy, you know. That's a lot. Um, but his thing was, so he'll always be working. And funny, Mark Victor Hansen talks about it, you know, and someone we've had on. And he talks, as you should always have several. Um, but this chap, anyway, his his motivation was saying, so every day I write 5,000 words. I work, so he works from 7 o'clock to 1 o'clock. That's his day. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says, I write 5,000 words. I edit 10,000 words and I read 20,000 words. He says, that is my daily discipline. And so you kind of go, because he said, by having multiple books being simply that someday might be, you know, it might be a biography day, if you like, or an autobiography or whatever. Uh, Then another day might be, so he also writes comics. He says, but it's exceptionally hard to write simply, you know, and as you say, same with marketing there, right? It's, it's, you know, it's hard to get the right, you know, to get the right message. It's like, you can say in a couple of words, what other people will say in, you know, two books, if you like. So it's trying to get that across, that that mix, right? Indeed, that that is the discipline of writing. And, um, you know, that's why I like writing, because it's very different to talking, because uh, with talking, you tend to skirt around a subject, you get a little bit closer, it's kind of like concentric circles and so on. Uh, With writing, uh, you have got that precision thing, so... That's um, yeah. That that's all a part of it. It's not just kind of blurting everything out. Well, not for me anyway. I like to get really precise, so that I am seeing saying something that hits other people between the eyes. So they're like, "Wow, yeah, that's it. That's it. That's my goal anyway for the for the writing uh, to just deliver incredible value for other people in a very simple form." Ah, look, I'm, I mean, I'm not there yet. I've got a long way to go. But when you read the great writers, that's what they do. And I'm full of admiration for great writers. Such an amazing talent. Absolutely. I mean, where, where are you at in your life now? I mean, would you say, do you, do you love yourself? Do you like yourself? Value yourself? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> without sounding too conceited, um, I do like myself because... To not dislike yourself is, it's uh, torturous, isn't it? I mean, how can, um, I, I know that I see this with a lot of younger people and I even see it with my girls because obviously they, they haven't got the, they haven't built up the kind of defences or the resilience or the robustness or 
that you know perhaps older people have but uh, the whole instagram generation is very very punishing you know that when i think about myself when i was my 18 year old daughter's age i never used to wear makeup i just used to walk around in dungarees and a t-shirt you know i really i really didn't care actually and a denim jacket and you know i probably looked like a bit of a tramp if you know, if you drop me in amongst the um, perfectly groomed 18 year olds these days and didn't have my nails done i mean i used to you know wear kind of black nail varnish that was probably chipped most of the time but i mean you know it was it was all very very um it was very very much not about that and these days the expectation and the pressure i think for particularly young women is just insane you know they feel as though they have to have all the fake lashes and the fake tan and the nails done and the expense you know that they are uh, because they're relentlessly targeted by all these cosmetic companies and the kylie kits and i mean you know all of that stuff and they don't know for example that topshop makeup is made by mac so you know you can choose to pay 10 times the amount for a mac eyeliner as you can for a topshop eyeliner really they're exactly the same they're made in the same factory it's just the same exactly the same different packaging you know it's the brand that you're paying for and they don't really understand any of that so they feel as though they've got to have all of this money to buy all of these items if they don't have all of these items that they're going to be unacceptable and of course having got three uh three young girls and seen them go through this i've seen these pressures increase and increase and increase and then of course they they look at um you know in all these instagram influencers um who are basically young fronty girls those are the people that they they um like that molly may uh girl you know <laughs> i don't know if you know who she is but anyway, she's on love island and she's you know she was already like an influencer but basically um they are professional influencers so they 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 do vlogs about their lives and they make their lives seem incredibly interesting and because they then get you know paid to be influencers they then manufacture these um excitement shall we say to make their lives look more glamorous or more interesting than other people um uh, because that is really what they do it's not that they're recording their lives it's that they're manufacturing a life that is you know when you're on the other side and you do a lot of social media you're aware of that you know that hey wait a minute i've got to find an instagramable moment today or a facebookable moment what's that's going to be because i've got to keep my profile high on social media so i think you can cope with that when you've got a lot of maturity and a lot of wisdom should we say because you've got a lot of years behind you but for these young people um i think it's exceptionally tough um so yes i love myself but i really feel for uh younger and more vulnerable people and also you know people in the public eye like that terribly tragic um story of caroline flack for example um who you know she probably just didn't have she wasn't equipped with um the ability to cope with the impact of that um social media exposure uh and of course all the jealousy and the haters and the what happens when you get all of those followers if you don't have if you're not trained and if you don't have the right support um to be able to withstand 
those kind of pressures, then you will end up inevitably feeling less than and probably disliking yourself. So I like myself and I don't have any problem with social media because, you know, because of what I've been through and, you know, I'm a, I'm a strong person. But I know that that is not the case for everybody. And um, as I said, I, I feel particularly for those young girls. And I'm sure it's the same for young boys. It's just I happen to have three daughters. How about you, Pete? How, how do you feel about social media? And um, I, I suppose for me, I, I, probably about two years ago, I decided, you know, I use it as a tool. It's a business tool now, um, you know, and that's that's the difference, I suppose, for me now. And, and I've seen a lot, you know, Facebook, you know, I've seen Facebook start and I've seen when it was just that it was personal profiles. And I noticed now, I mean, you know, my app, I think I'm up to every third post or every fourth post is sponsored, you know, so I can really see the ratcheting up, you know, the monetization, the scaling that um, I think I'm. Yeah, it's uh, the more. The more it speeds up, the slower I get. You know, I'm sort of getting my head around Instagram and all that. But so listen, it's it's a it's a tool, right? You know, so I, I find this technology is fantastic. Yeah. Um, you know, but like I say, for me, again, as age goes on and all the rest, and funny, I had, I had a mentee call this morning, and and we're just talking about literally, you know, switching off, so handing over social media accounts to others, and then basically going, um, yeah, for the good. To, for whatever reason, you know, muting other stories and all, because it is, I mean, comparison is a thief of joy, right? You know, it's. Oh, definitely. That, that, and that is an amazing uh, quote. Um, indeed. And I think occasionally I get myself, I get sucked into it. So I, I was actually, um, the last time that that happened to me, it was somebody who was saying, um, yeah, I'm up at four o'clock in the morning and then I do my live broadcast at eight o'clock at night. And I was like, what? Four o'clock in the morning and eight o'clock at night. And, you know, I, I, all of a sudden I thought, you know what? I get up at 7.30. <laughs> I do do some live, some live broadcasts at eight o'clock at night, uh, fairly reluctantly. But, you know, that's the time that people are watching. So, so I've got like a little discipline, but I couldn't get up at four o'clock in the morning and do. And then I started feeling less than, and I thought, just don't get sucked into it yeah. because it is so easy. And half the time people will say this stuff and I'll tell you who it was. It was actually Rob Moore um, <laughs> because I'm on his, his marketing mastermind. I was like, Oh, Rob, do you really do this? And then of course, then he said, but I told me that he goes, and has a long nap in the afternoon. It's like, well, okay, so it's like you have a siesta, all right. Mm -hmm. So, and and then he also admitted that he didn't get up at four o'clock in the morning. But he's probably just, you know, like some people, they they'll just kind of, they might do it once or twice and say, you know what, that's not for me. Mm -hmm. So, so you just shouldn't believe everything, anything that you hear on social media. People, they'll just chuck stuff out for the sake of it, won't they? A lot of the time. Um, so, yeah. It's my, my dad used to say to me, you know, and it was, especially when you were sort of kid and all the rest, you know, it's just never mind what everyone else is doing. Just you mind what Peter's doing, uh, you know, and it's, and it's so, so true because exactly that you see all the people and God, they're getting, I should be getting up earlier. And, but now I suppose I've been 20 years in property and, and, you know, doing everything else is kind of going just, you know, live by your actions. You know, it's like, I don't care what other people are doing, what else is going on. It's like, you know, how's you, how are you with you? Are you good with you? 
you know, what are you doing? Are you taking your time? Are you doing that? How do you feel about other things? You know, someone posts about this. How did, ooh, like I had it this morning, like I said, there was someone going, someone posted something that was like, okay, but at least now I catch myself and going, that's interesting. You reacted there. Why was that? Okay, I see now. Okay, which is not straightforward as such. You know, it takes, takes a bit of time to realize that. So what uh, what did they post? Was it something that made you feel a bit kind of less than or was it, what, what, what kind of um, was it? It was, um, they were developing in their own way, but off the back of somebody else's strategy, I think is possibly the nicest way to put it. Okay, um, okay. So, and that that's the one thing, you know, um, and, and I, false gods I, I struggle with, you know, but that's just me, you know, it's kind of, again, because I struggle and I look at, you know, integrity is massive for me. That's, a, you know, you talk about truth, integrity would be my, my sort of top, top, top. Um, you know, and it's, listen, I, I can't, I'm not standing on a pedestal saying, no, my life has been full of it. In fact, it's probably because I've had moments of lack of integrity that actually now is why it's sort of bubbled to the top and said, no, I'm taking a decision that actually, this is my value. This is what I stick to. Mm -hmm. As a result, when you look at, you know, whether it be sort of marketing or something else, it's a, it's a bit borderline. It's maybe, it's not, it's not misrepresentative, but it's certainly maybe questionably sort of tilted in in a favor or it's slanted in a certain way that's mm. when i sort of i kind of go mm, struggle you know yeah yeah you raise an interesting point because um you know another thing that john de martini says is that we all have every trait within us in other words you know we're all capable of acting with huge integrity and also capable of acting with a lack of integrity and you know at at times we're going to give in to temptation and we're not going to be perfect either and um it's good that we recognize it in others because we should also recognize it in ourselves and really life is a process of just um yeah just just um really evaluating our own behavior against the standards that we've set for ourselves and recognizing when we or other people have fallen short and other people are sometimes telling us they're telling us what our own standards are and what you know actually reinforcing them so what you say is uh you know when you notice something like that it's it's also serving a purpose for you isn't it yes and it's interesting when someone triggers you like that it's kind of going why you know, what a good mentor of mine said to me is saying, you know, what is it you, you see in them that's annoying you about you? You know, suddenly <laughs> going, well, they haven't done this and they haven't done this and, you know, they can't do that. And you're kind of going, okay, why is that triggering you? <laughs> yeah, and that's a good question. Very good. Mm, you know, so it's it's always interesting. But as you say, it's, you know, there's John D. Martin. I mean, there's all the, all the sort of the greats and it's never been a better time of, you know, immersing yourself in that world, you know, so it's fascinating. It really is fascinating. You know? Oh, well, thank you. Yes, it really so Jane, is. Tell us, Jane, in one or two words, what is your fire in the belly then? What is my what? Your fire in the belly. My fire in the belly is really, um, as I said, it's connection. It's connection. It's the, the space between people uh, and how to actually fire that up um, to, to, a greater good really um so i love relationships i'm a massive people person i love its application in marketing and obviously marketing is my my core um area of expertise so i love the way that connection can work as a commercial application and actually grow businesses and and uh you know send powerful messages out to the world that are 
you know, help people transform their businesses and their lives. So I'm very, very passionate about entrepreneurial connection, should we say, as well as interpersonal connection. Um, I just love both of them, but connection is my fire in the belly. Love it. Love it. Thank you. So where can people find out more, reach you, stalk you, track you down? Yeah, well, I have my own podcast, The Smart Connector, um, and I'm actually going to be launching Series 2 in January. This, As I said, this may be, um, this may be released in January, as you said, so I could be, be on to that. But that's going to have more of my own content because up until now, I've focused on um, interviewing really very, very interesting series of entrepreneurs in two different series. One is more marketing-focused and more is one to do with business growth. So um, relaunching the podcast, The Smart Connector. Um, obviously, that's on all the platforms, iTunes, uh, Spotify, and so on. Uh, you can buy my book, The Smart Connector, on Amazon, amazon.co.uk or .com in all different, all three formats. Um, my website, www.janebaylor.com. You can contact me on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I'm there on all of them. Wonderful. Thank you. Final message? Final message, never give up on your dreams. I would say always cherish your cherish your visions and your dreams uh, for they're the blueprints of your soul. And uh, I can't remember the exact quote, but, but Napoleon Hill uh, of your ultimate achievements. So never, ever give up, give up on your dreams, I would say. Jane, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much, Pete. Thank you very much for interviewing me. And I'll look forward to interviewing you for my podcast again soon, hopefully. Thank you very much. All right, then. Bye-bye for now. Well, that was another great episode of Fire in the Belly. You know, this really wouldn't be possible without a great guest taking the time to share their personal journeys. And by the way, sometimes it is personal. It's an absolute pleasure to have that and then to hear the journeys that people have been on. We've loads more episodes coming up soon. And it's always a pleasure to have guests on. If you do happen to know anyone with true fire in their belly, please reach out to us so we can share their journey, lessons and successes. So all that's left to say is have a great day, live with fire in your belly and be the mightiest version of you.